Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. These weren't like the, you know, the 2016 trolls that people picture where it's like a Pepe the Frog avatar who's just saying kind of nonsensical, incomprehensible statements just to disrupt conversation. These were real people who kind of didn't care that anybody could see they were posting these things. So when I reached out to them, honestly, a lot of them were sort of of the attitude of like kind of not really even understanding what I was curious about because they were like, yeah, that's what I posted that made sense to say, you know? And some of them were willing to get into it a little bit more and kind of examine why they would find themselves being part of the pylon, you know, hashing out what caused a stranger's death. And I think some of them were able to be somewhat introspective about it. But on the whole, the reaction was, I don't understand what you even find interesting about this. This was like a very normal thing to say. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest this week is The Atlantic's Caitlin Tiffany. If you spent a lot of time online during the pandemic, you may have heard of the Herman Cain Award, named after the late presidential candidate who died of COVID after attending a Trump rally. If you're not familiar, the Herman Cain Award is a Facebook page and Twitter trend where people basically mock anti-vaxxers who've been hospitalized or killed by COVID. Lovely stuff. And even though the Herman Cain Awards are now mostly behind us, the online trend of celebrating the misfortunes of strangers, including their deaths, is still very much alive. Which is what Caitlin wrote about a few weeks ago in an Atlantic piece titled, How Telling People to Die Became Normal. Caitlin decided to investigate what motivated some posters to tell people they don't like to die. And she actually got internet trolls on the phone to ask them why they thought it was okay to mock or threaten people who've lost loved ones just because they disagree with their politics. So we talked about her piece, what she learned talking to trolls, and what she thinks about the most extreme form of trolling, doxing, and why the definition of these terms has evolved over time. As always, if you have comments, questions, or episode ideas, please email us at offline at crooked.com. And stick around after my interview. Max and I are back in studio to talk about Walter Isaacson's new Elon Musk biography, Congress's AI summit, and why President Biden's DOJ is suing the Internet's largest search engine. Here's Caitlin Tiffany. Caitlin Tiffany, welcome to Offline. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, we've been looking for an excuse to have you on for a while now because you uh, write about so much of what we discuss on this show. And I thought your recent piece in The Atlantic 
about trolling uh, was fantastic and also a great way into the topic. For those who haven't read it, it's called How Telling People to Die Became Normal. And you talk to two kinds of social media trolls, trolls who have mocked the deaths of the unvaccinated and anti-vaccine activists who tell people their loved one died because they got the shot. What made you want to focus on these two groups of people? Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess since the beginning of the pandemic, um, it's been an interest of mine to see how seemingly normal people um, have reacted to the politicization of um, of COVID and of the vaccines. And we saw a lot of this at the beginning um, during the sort of not exactly lockdowns, but, you know, closures of businesses and schools, there were Facebook groups that were warring with each other constantly and using this really jarring language to talk about other people. So you maybe saw like COVIDiots. Um, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Or there was a Facebook group in North Carolina that I was following where they referred to, um, you know, people who were doubting um, the facts of, of the science of COVID referred to them as um, like plague rats. Uh, <laughs> so like carriers of the plague and rodents, which is obviously quite an insulting thing to say about someone, um, but also just sort of, you know, dehumanizing and bizarre. And I think what was interesting to me about it was that people who were having these conversations, like they didn't think of it that way. They thought of it as kind of, um, either letting off steam or um, as a kind of logical expression of this extreme frustration they were feeling um, that so that seemingly so many people in the country just couldn't get on the same page as them about this very real and very dangerous thing that was happening. So that was a sort of a spirit uh, that I saw on both, I don't want to say both sides because it's not really a, de- a debate, obviously, but you know, on both sides of the COVID discourse, um, there was this rage that led to almost um, cynicism and detachment and this ability to kind of uh, imagine everybody on the other side as like a meme or a joke or just another example of this fad or, you know, trend that you despise and and to kind of engage with them that way rather than as a person. And like with trolling, it's actually kind of complicated because I it's kind of hard to tell, right, in some of these conversations whether people are trolling or whether they're totally sincere and just like really detached from reality. Um, so that's a that's obviously an interesting space for me to live as a reporter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you use the word dehumanization, which is, I think, a, an apt description of what happens here, because the examples you use, right, there's all these, uh, you know, intolerable debates online, especially on Twitter about COVID uh, and have been since the beginning of the pandemic. But um, getting to the point where someone dies and then you celebrate that death or mock it or say use it as a reason to say, I told you so, when that person leaves behind other people who they love very much, family members, is just like, it really seems to me like it's getting to 
the extremes and it's something that I can't really understand. And it's not like it's it's not just like people do that. Then they defend like there were whole debates about whether it was the right idea to have you talk about the um, the Herman Cain Award uh, page on Facebook. Right. There was a Herman Cain Award because Herman Cain, Herman Cain, of course, didn't believe in vaccination and then died of uh, covid. And it was, you know, any anyone else who died of uh, who died without the vaccine was like, you know, targets for people on these page. And you and then, you know, you write about people's loved ones having to see that. And then on the other side, I mean, a colleague of yours at The Atlantic lost his son and people said that they he lost his son because he somehow vaccinated him. Right. Because these were the anti-vaccine crazies. And what that did to him was just beyond awful. Like it was just hard to even read that piece. So you track these people down and you found their information. You called them up. Were most people willing to talk to you? Um, more people than I thought would be. I think that, um, you know, this question gets at something that's important to understand about the dynamics of, of online. I guess trolling is kind of a blanket term. Um mm like we can get into maybe some of the semantics of what trolling actually is, but like a lot of these people were posting under their real full names, um, you know, on Twitter and especially on Facebook and in their names were easily connected to like their businesses, their email addresses, their phone numbers. Um, These weren't, these weren't like the, you know, the 2016 trolls that you people picture where it's like a Pepe the frog avatar, who's just saying kind of nonsensical, um, you know, incomprehensible statements just to disrupt conversation. These were real people who kind of didn't care that anybody could see they were posting these things. So when I reached out to them, honestly, a lot of them were sort of of the attitude of like, kind of not really even understanding what I was curious about because they were like, yeah, that's what I posted. That made sense to say, you know, um, And some of them were willing to get into it a little bit more and kind of examine why they would be, um, why they would find themselves being part of the pile on, you know, hashing out what caused a stranger's death. And I think some of them were able to be somewhat introspective about it. But on the whole, it was really more, um, really more the reaction was, I don't understand what you even find interesting about this. This was like a very normal thing to say. Wow. (laughs) Did any of them, like, in the conversations you had through the course of the conversation, express any kind of regret or remorse for their comments? Or was everyone just like, no, that's totally normal. This is my these are my political beliefs. Those people are wrong. And that's that. Yeah, I spoke to one woman who um, she was older. And I think maybe she didn't seem like super well versed in kind of how social media platforms work. So she had seen. the the gentleman who wrote the story for The Atlantic about his son dying, she had seen his tweet on her feed because, you know, had been retweeted by someone. And she kind of instinctively replied to it saying, like, the, the powers that be that are pushing the vaccine um, should be held accountable or something. So she thought of herself as, like, not participating in the pylon because she wasn't blaming the father. She was blaming these larger power structures And that was interesting to me because, you know, if as a reporter looking at the at the tweets, I wasn't differentiating her response from the other ones. I was thinking this is part of the pile on. And I'm sure, um, you know, being on the receiving end of that, um, 
would also, you would, I mean, you're not thinking of that as like a comment that's coming in to defend you. It looks like another yeah. one of the crazy comments. So I think there, there are, there is space for miscommunication in this too. Like she, she, um, that woman was very remorseful and saying, I, you know, this is horrible. It's awful to say something like these people are saying to a grieving parent, but she was definitely a rare case. I would say even some of the more thoughtful people I spoke to were kind of able to justify things in a roundabout way. Like I would talk about in the piece, speaking to a woman who had reposted this like collage of the father's tweets, you know, talking about getting his kid the vaccine and and giving the kid candy because he did such a good job sitting for the vaccine she reposted like all of those tweets on top of a photo that appeared in his Ugh. obituary. And Jesus. she was able to, you know, really split hairs and be like, well, I didn't say he killed his son. I just presented a chronology. Um, I just like offered the information to people to draw their own conclusions. And maybe you think that's inappropriate, but I think it's it's fair game, basically. So, yeah. It- yeah. <laughs> It does seem like a lot of the um, what a lot of us would think as normal human reactions to someone else's suffering and death are subsumed by the larger political context here. Yeah. And and some of the the polarization. And like, I know I know you looked at some of the research into schadenfreude uh, for this piece. What did you learn about the desire to watch uh, bad things happen to people that uh, you dislike? Yeah, I didn't end up in, um, talking about this in the piece because it was getting a little lengthy, but there was some really interesting research done last year about actually specifically about, you know, contemporary U.S. politics and people's desires to say, you know, if a, if somebody who denies climate change lives in Florida and suffers the effects of climate change, like they have that coming to them or... Um, and even in the context of COVID, there was there were questions asked of, you know, um, more like Republican respondents who would say, you know, if a Democrat suffers because of their business closure, um, you know, during the pandemic, like they had that coming to them. That's what they asked for. And they did even ask, you know, if somebody denies COVID and then they then they become ill with it, do they deserve that? And the answer, especially on the left, was overwhelmingly yes, even though the survey didn't specifically ask about dying. I think it's kind of implied in the question. So that wasn't totally surprising based on what I'd seen online, but it was interesting to see it reflected so starkly. And then with the research that I mentioned in the piece, that was more about online behaviors specifically. And a, a researcher at BYU, Pamela Brubaker, had looked at um, what motivates trolls on Reddit. And like I said, I think the dynamic is is pretty different between somebody who's trolling just to get a reaction and somebody who's, you know, sincere in their beliefs and but just delusional. Um, but I still thought her paper was relevant because she was talking about this kind of selfishness that you have to have in order to interject yourself into these conversations in a way that completely reduces someone to like whatever trope you you can fit them into and robs them of their humanity. Um, it's just prioritizing this like almost desperate need to be right 
and to and to disrupt the other side's conversation over like any consideration of like what collateral damage that might have. Um, and they found like that motivation, that kind of like narcissism or like need to interject was a really powerful motivator for some people. Does the research say anything about whether that's how our brains are wired, whether social media and and being on the internet too much has made that worse, whether that's just a product of increased political polarization over the last couple of decades? Like, what's the core of why so many people want to do this? Yeah, I think schadenfreude is like an in-group, out-group phenomenon just historically that would bear out in like decades and decades of social science research. So to me personally, I think that it's more compellingly a story of of political polarization in this in the US than it is specifically a social media story. I think social media is just a really useful tool for people who are already susceptible to having those kinds of attitudes. It just gives you a venue to express them. You know, I personally, I mean, I've heard plenty of people in casual conversation in my day-to-day life like make jokes about climate change deniers in Florida and how they deserve to, you know, sink into the sea, um, which they don't mean probably, but, um, <laughs> but like <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that I, you hear a lot. It's just that social media allows you to see it more. And I, I think, um, I think it looks a lot more stark and jarring maybe, um, when you come across comments like that on the internet that, you know, aren't contextualized by tone or by knowing that the person doesn't really mean it. Um, and it's just like, oh my God, what a horrible thing to say, you know? Yeah. I do, I do wonder because, you know, as, as you pointed out, sort of the, the, the usual argument is, you know, anonymity on social media makes it easier to do this kind of stuff. These people, of course, all posted under their real names, but I've often wondered whether the way we use social media, you don't see the person, you're not, you, you don't necessarily look at their face. You don't see their emotions as you're lobbing these insults to them. And it's harder for me to believe that if someone was say in the hospital for something else and they saw a family crying over a loved one who just died because they weren't vaccinated, that they would go up and say, oh, your loved one had that coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, I do wonder if just like the way that these platforms are constructed, even if it's not the anonymity, makes it a little bit easier to do this from your keyboard, from your phone, from your own house than it is to like do it in person. Yeah. I mean, I think distance is definitely a factor. I don't know if it's totally unique to social media platforms. I think that would have been true probably, I don't know, in the age of just email or or forums yeah. or whatever. Um, but I do think social media plays a role in the sense that we touch on this a little bit in the piece that um, these platforms are spaces where people are really, you know, primed and incentivized to present this um, pretty easily digestible um, image of themselves. So if you went onto my social media profiles, you would pretty quickly get a sense of like, you know, where I live, my socioeconomic status, my political leanings, my cultural interests, my background. Those things, those signifiers are um, really salient on social media and they do fall into tropes pretty, pretty simply, right? Like I, I mentioned in the piece that like, you know, people on Twitter who have like a Ukraine flag emoji in their username, like that has become really strongly associated with, um, you know, liberals and Democrats. That's like, a, a it's a tell. Or someone who talks about like freedom in their Twitter bio. I think anyone um, 
who spend enough time online sees that and they 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 make, they draw the opposite assumption. They say this this is like a Republican um, presentation choice. So in that sense, like I think social media, first of all, helps people make these really snap decisions uh, about okay, what kind of person am I dealing with here? Who are they? And then it also provides ammunition, evidence, like with the example of the father who wrote the essay for The Atlantic, whose son died. Tragically, I think part of the reason that story spread so well in anti-vaccine factions was because he provided, um, had provided all these personal details that they were able to then weaponize. Like he had posted about taking his kids to get vaccinated. He had posted about, um, you know, buying them candy as a reward. And it was easy for them to twist that into like you you know you bribed your kids and now and now one of them has died. So I do think social media plays a major role in that sense. I think like it was just important for me in this story not to remove like the aspect of human agency because I think sometimes sometimes coverage of social media platforms and the ills of them I think gives a little bit too much power to the platforms and the algorithms and kind of excuses people for doing things that they ultimately did choose to do, you know? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's much more complicated and layered, I think, than a lot of the debate. It's a little bit of a chicken or egg thing too, Mm -hmm. because I sometimes wonder like, is it just the most politically opinionated people who end up going to social media to have these fights and people who just like to get in fights or if you're on social media for other reasons is it just easier for you to get sucked into these political fights because you are on social media and i do think it's a little bit of both yeah i would agree with that i mean i think i in my early 20s when i was first on twitter i would get in fights because it was kind of hard to resist. You know, if someone says Same. something you think is really dumb or wrong, you want to reply and make them feel stupid. Um, and you do kind of have to live, sometimes learn the hard way, you know, put your hand on the stove and realize, oh, like this doesn't feel good when I, when I do this. This is a waste of my time. And it's making me like a, a worse person. Um, and you have to definitely like choose to step away from that. Cause I, I, yeah, I do think it's a compelling, um, I get why people have the impulse and it's right there and it's so easy to engage, but yeah, ultimately you can, you can say like, this isn't worth my time and it makes me feel bad. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Did you know that more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted from foster care? Ellie was one of them. When she was placed in foster care at 16 after experiencing significant abuse, she felt unlovable. Thankfully, Ellie was adopted with help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Today, she's planning on college and has a bright future. But more than 20,000 teens age out of care every year. You can help. Visit DaveThomasFoundation.org slash learn more. A more extreme version of trolling is doxing, which you wrote about last year, um, partly because, as you pointed out, the definition of the word has changed to mean basically whatever people want it to mean. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of the term and then how its meaning has evolved over time? Yeah, I, I think this is relevant to the trolling conversation too. Both of these words are, um, you know, words that had pretty specific meanings when they were coined, you know, decades ago um, in the golden age of forum culture. So trolling originally would have meant, you know, deliberately posting something that you didn't even necessarily think was true. You just wanted to get a rise out of people and disrupt conversation. So that's why I think it's a little bit of an awkward fit in the in the um, the story we were just talking about, because I, obviously some of those people really did believe what they were saying. With um, doxing, it, it was originally meant to mean that you were taking someone's personal private information out of, like, in, you were in a space where the norm was one of anonymity. And then to, like, intimidate someone or to, like, mess up their life in some way, you would release their personal information. And that could mean just their name, but I think it's more, more understood to mean, like, other information as well, like a home address or something that could put them at risk if they were you know, being threatened in some way. Um, and that was the term, that was the way the term was popularly understood in, um, you know, just before the 2016 election when Gamergate was a huge news story and people were being doxxed by, um, you know, trolls on 4chan and Reddit in a way that was very physically threatening. Like they would post their address so that someone could send a SWAT team there um, or, you know, just, deliver empty pizza boxes in like a, in a threatening way, like I know where you live kind of way. So I think as for most news consumers, that would be what you would think of when you said doxing. But there's been this cultural shift in the last few years, um, I think largely because of crypto culture, which um, is, a, is a culture where there is this norm of anonymity where you can have a profile picture that's just like a cartoon, um, like an NFT, and go by a nickname and never reveal your real name. Um, so some of the powerful figures in that world refer to doxing as just like, you've told someone my name, um, you've showed someone a photo of my face, really just like 
any personal details whatsoever. And they're, so they're simultaneously very serious about it, like very rigid about what constitutes doxing. It's the smallest little thing. They're also kind of not serious about it, I think, because to say that to say that revealing someone's name or who is in charge of a billion dollar NFT brand is is endangering their safety is obviously false. Um, and they will be kind of winky about it, like, oh, LOL, just got doxxed or whatever, which is obviously not something you would say if um, <laughs> if a SWAT team came to your house. Yeah, I guess the challenge is to sort of separate out the real harms and dangers that can come from certain forms of doxing like that are we're still dealing with today. People are still getting swatted. The Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, is 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 hoping to protect um, the jurors in the upcoming Trump trial because the grand jurors had threats uh, against their lives because they were doxxed. So I guess the real debate is like at a time when so much of our information is already on the Internet, who deserves anonymity? How much? And how does that even work? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do, what do you think about that? Yeah, I guess with anything, I think it, it's it's very context specific. Um, and if you want to use like the broadest possible definition of doxing, it would, I think it would also include just taking some information or images from one location and moving them to another where the audience is going to be more hostile. Um, so I think that's something that the super popular um, like libs of TikTok account was really known for doing, like taking videos of, um, you know, people performing drag or um, just like queer people talking about their lives um, to what they would have thought of as a receptive audience and then reposting it for this like very aggressive right-wing audience that, you know, hates these people and doesn't think they should be full citizens of the country. Um, And you could call that doxing in a sort of spiritual sense because it is causing this like dangerous exposure. And I think that's why the term is so muddy now in our our modern state of social media, because there are so many ways in which even if your personal information is already out there, technically, most people's addresses are findable now unless you pay to have them removed from databases. So even if your personal information is out there, it's just like the act of moving it somewhere else is what can be overtly threatening. So I think it's it's good for people to be aware of that. I think it also allows people to use the term in bad faith sometimes. Um, like when the Washington Post revealed the name of the woman behind Libs of TikTok, she claimed to be doxxed, um, which maybe is literally true or felt true to her. But I think you could, you I would make the argument that her name was in the the public interest and newsworthy because she had a huge platform which she was using to terrorize people. But yeah, I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of meandering away from your, your question a little bit, but I, you know, it always comes down for me to like, this isn't a term that's like means one thing and should only be used one way. It's very case by case to me and has a lot to do with intent and with like with consequences and, motivation as well like you know there's there's simply a different motivation between a police officer tweeting a picture of a black lives matters protesters full driver's license versus like 
a BuzzFeed reporter saying, hey, I looked at a public business record and I found out who the guy behind Bored Apes is. Um, like Those are just obviously yeah. two different things. Well, I was going to say, like, once upon a time, long, long ago, uh, we were all doxxed by something called the Yellow Pages. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. <laughs> they had our names and phone numbers in there. But I do think there's there's so much of a focus now on sort of the meaning of the term and claiming that you were doxxed and using it sometimes in bad faith ways versus sort of the actions that some people take when they have other people's personal information, which seems like it should be the focus, right? Because you could have someone's personal information, reach out to them and have a civil conversation or be annoying and then they ignore you. Or you could use it to harass them, to show up at their house, to cause them harm, right? Like it's so definitely, I think that it seems like the debate needs to be focused more on the actions that come from having people's personal information and not being them not being anonymous than whether or not something counts as doxing. Right. Yeah. And I think it should be galvanizing, too, for people who maybe haven't previously been like super interested in conversations about online privacy because they think like, well, I don't use the Internet to do anything bad. So I'm not worried about that. But like as we've seen as we were just talking about with the trolling story like your pieces of your personal life are scattered all over the internet and all it takes is like somebody to be motivated to use them in a way that's um harmful to you and that's not fair like i i had somebody who was um you know sending my work email address like 100 emails a night so I, the atlantic was like we should get your address removed from the internet you have to pay money to do that and you have to renew that subscription every year like, I, I I think it's useful to just have people thinking more often of, like, how would I react if my personal information was used against me? Like, what is out there that I've, I've left up for people to find? And also, like, in what ways are, you know, the, the government currently failing to protect my, like, privacy and rights as a citizen? Um, it's an important topic, even if you're not saying, you know, running around yelling about being doxxed. Yeah. A couple final questions for you, just as someone who covers internet culture and social media so much. Um, do you think we're close to a tipping point where social media has become so awful that it's getting less popular and less important? Or is that just wishful thinking on on my part? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think we're probably in um, an awkward phase in between, you know, the heyday of Facebook and Twitter, which was very, I don't know, 2010s uh, social media. Mm. And and now there's a lot of power and attention uh, consolidating in TikTok or even Instagram. I think it is the, the platforms that my entire journalism career have been based on are definitely getting worse and probably going to like erode to the point of uselessness at some point. Um, but I don't think we'll ever be done with social media. Do you, uh, do you have any advice for how to um, have a relatively pleasant online experience uh, on these platforms that's not ruined by online trolling and all this other awful shit we talked about? Yeah. I mean, who knows? They change Twitter every single day and this feature might not be available tomorrow. But I always tell everyone my number one advice for using Twitter is to mute all of your notifications. Um, Mm. There's no reason to have Twitter notifications. 
you can toggle it so that you still get them from people you follow. That way you still see when your friend or your boss likes your stuff, but um, you don't have to see all the crazy people in your mentions who are accusing you of being a child trafficker or whatever it may be that day. <laughs> that that honestly was the single best step that I took is to only view uh, mentions and replies and everything else from people that I follow that follow me. That was like, yeah, that was huge. it truly changed my life. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> because when you start when I started when I was like 22 in journalism, I wanted to see what everyone was saying about every single yeah. thing I wrote. And yeah, um, I was there. yeah, then when I turned that off, I was like, why did I ever care? Um, didn't need it don't miss it yeah. <laughs> life is better without it Caitlin Tiffany thank you so much for uh, for joining offline really appreciate the conversation yeah thanks so much for having me As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. All right, we're back. Hey, Max. Oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking about the Roman Empire. I'm sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> Just classic, Max. Just going through favorite empires, favorite. You are you a Republican era guy or more of an imperial era guy? Or are again, you a kingdom guy? Again, I just know what the Wikipedia page told me when I looked at it. It's a great resource. For the first time, I love browsing after Wikipedia. This as as an internet skeptic, I will always stand up for Wikipedia. All right, a lot of news to cover today. The Biden versus Google case kicked off this week, which one former DOJ antitrust lawyer called the most significant U.S. monopoly case in a generation. Government says Google controls about 90% of the search engine market, not because they have the best search engine, but because they have the most money and they use it to make deals with companies like Apple to be the default search engine on their products. Google says not so fast. The default setting can easily be changed. And the reason they're dominant is because their search engine is so awesome. Uh, what do you think, Max? Uh, who, whose argument do you find most persuasive here? So I think it's important to keep in mind here that what is at issue is not just does Google have a monopoly, but are they using their market power to exploit that position in a way that's anti-competitive? And I think it's easy to look at this and to be like, look, I love Google search. Google search is great. I don't want to use 
Alta Vista, whatever. Like, why should I be so upset about this? But there is a school of thought that is really prevalent in the Biden administration, but that goes back like a century that says that monopolies are really, really bad because when a company has a monopoly, even if that company like Google does offer a good service, and it seems like I'm not obviously being ripped off by having like Google preloaded on my phone or whatever, that that company will necessarily exploit that position to extract more and more resources from consumers and to deliver a worse and worse product because they have no incentive to deliver a better product and because they can use that power to... um, basically just like get more out of consumers. And like the big example that people cite in Google is that like, okay, they don't charge for the service, but they can squash competitors. So like, sure, there's not a better alternative to Google now, but maybe there would have been if Google wasn't using its market position. Maybe they're extracting more of your personal data and using it against you because there's no place else that you can go. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that like the Biden administration, the people at like the top of DOJ antitrust division see this as part of a larger effort to break the monopolies of big tech that actually goes back to like before even... Biden came into office that they explicitly talk about as not just like, oh, it's so you'll have a better search engine on your phone because they see these big monopolies as a threat to democracy itself. Well, one specific example that I saw reading this was, um, so there's a search engine called DuckDuckGo, yeah. which I only knew about because I've seen Tommy use it. And I was like, what is he doing? Why isn't he using Google? But um, Tech for, those who are, for those who are focused on OPSEC, <laughs> um, it's like a privacy-focused search engine. So it doesn't like, you know, vacuum up all your data. Right. And the vice president of public affairs there says it takes 15 steps to choose DuckDuckGo as the default option on a smartphone running Google's Android operating system. And so you can see why, like, say you don't want your data... Uh, collected and you want to use it I didn't I wouldn't have even heard of DuckDuckGo (laughs) so not only is it hard to get it you know so you can see why the lack of competition could actually ultimately hurt consumers and people have been saying for a few years Google search seems like it's getting worse and worse it's more dominated by ads it's harder to get the actual information you want and that's classic monopolistic behavior of you're no longer engineered toward delivering a better product you're engineered towards extracting more value from the consumers that you have held hostage basically and Google has known this has been coming for years there was this story in the markup that ran in um like mid 2020 about how Google was distributing this guidance to employees about certain terms and words not to use because there was this presumption that antitrust investigators were going to come through and not to say things like dominance, not to talk about market position, never to externally Mm. use internal Google data on how much of the search market they controlled because they were just like the antitrust people are inevitably coming for us because, you know, the document doesn't say we have monopoly, but it kind of implicitly concedes that. And again, I think it's important to think of this as not just a like, is Google search too dominant, which it is, but also think of it as a first step towards this larger project of dismantling the big tech monopolies, including, you know, Facebook. So those are potentially some of the longer term implications in the short term on this trial for this trial. DOJ has been sort of quiet about possible remedies that they would ask for if they get a favorable decision here. Though it sounds like people think that breaking up Google is unlikely to happen from this one case, though that is a possible remedy. For when the European Union uh, had a problem with this, Google basically came up with a choice screen 
where you can pick your search engine at the beginning and then they hope that people select Google, but you at least have the choice and that was to appease the the Europeans. So you could see something like that. Yeah, it's a hard problem to solve because it's hard when your product is free to come up with a remedy that will introduce more choice in the marketplace. And like the, yeah. the case that people cite as a precedent a lot to this is the big Microsoft antitrust case in the 90s. But that was a case where it was easy for DOJ to recommend breaking up the company. That made sense because what Microsoft was doing was it was using its dominance of the operating system market with Windows to say all of our Windows machines have to be preloaded with the software applications that we also make. Mm. So it was easy for, and a judge did ultimately rule in this, but then it got thrown out for weird reasons, to say that we have to break up the operating system and the software division into different companies. I don't know what solution they're going to have for this. I'm sure they have something in mind, though. And ironically, that Microsoft case is what allowed Google to uh, take off and become a dominant search engine. It's that it's funny. That's actually part of the like standard lore in Silicon Valley, which I think goes to like the deep fear of antitrust cases. That even if you're just investigated for a few years, you have to be so cautious about what you do when you're under investigation that it can allow a competitor to come in and eat your lunch. There's like there's a really really deep fear of antitrust investigations in the tech industry, and at the same time, there's this school of thought that says that monopolies are good. That's been really yeah. dominant in Silicon Valley for a long time. Peter Thiel wrote a whole book about it, Zero to One. Well, I saw in one of these pieces the Google lawyer was arguing that one reason they should be allowed to remain as they are is because of AI, because of artificial intelligence, and because uh, Google is arguing that their size and scale allows them to do re- this research into AI that other companies can't. And I was like, wait, that's an argument for? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> like, uh, Do I want one company having right. all the power to do research into AI because they're telling us that they are, you know, our benevolent... Uh, masters here. Right. Especially because, again, like the incentives that you have are so different when you're a monopoly. If you're Google and you're saying, what can I do with AI and you're a monopoly, you're not saying, what are the AI tools that are going to attract new consumers that people are really going to like? You're going to say, what are ways I can use AI to just drill even more money out of the people who have to use my search engine because they don't have any other choice? So we have to flip those incentives. I think that's really important. Speaking of AI, uh, flip phone user Chuck Schumer organized a... (laughs) Is he a flip phone guy, really? Yeah. Wow. Famously. Chuck Schumer taking the offline challenge. Good for him. Yeah, I don't don't think he ever... (laughs) I don't think he was ever online. He organized a three-hour meeting of the minds in Washington this week, uh, attended by Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, the CEOs of Google, OpenAI, Microsoft, various Democratic and Republican politicians... All around AI, most of the executives agreed on the need for regulating AI, uh, with Elon warning the group of civilizational risks. But according to the New York Times, there was some disagreement among the titans. Uh, Here's a quote. Mr. Zuckerberg highlighted open source research and development of AI, which means that the source code of the underlying AI systems are available to the public. And he said, quote, open source democratizes access to these tools, and that helps level the playing field and foster innovation for people and businesses. But apparently Bill Gates and others raised concerns that open source AI could lead to security risks. No shit. (laughs) I just want to say that like Zuckerberg's quote reminded me of his argument for Facebook in the first place. Like, all this is about 
is connecting the world. And the more mm. you connect people all around the world, it democratizes communication. And everyone has a voice and everything's going to be wonderful. And, I, and it's the same shit on open. Like, I don't, I, I, I could be proven wrong. I don't know enough about this. But, like, it does seem to me that giving everyone in the world the tools to do whatever they want with AI was not going to lead to a good place. It really underscores for me that if I wanted to know the best way to regulate a new emerging technology, the people who I would consult on it are not the heads of the major companies dominating the tech sector. Yeah. It's it's like it's a real contrast that as the executive branch of our government is questioning and seeking to reduce the power of these companies, the legislative branch is consulting those same companies for how they should like guide the tech industry going forward. It's a real like the frog holding hearings, asking the scorpion to testify on the best way to cross the river. I guess there were some other experts there too that were not affiliated there with were, companies. There so were, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to be yeah. too but like And they're close to our hearings, so we don't know exactly what was said. Yeah. And, I also think there's a little and this is probably left over from the Obama era. There's still a little bit of like, oh, these guys are so smart. Smartest and people. they can, yeah, yeah, they're the smartest people in the room. And there's definitely more skepticism now. And I'm sure Schumer and a lot of the other Republican and Democratic politicians, they're skeptical of them. But still, it, it's still sort of a, a little bit of a hangover from, yeah, you know, uh, Silicon Valley knows all. I, I want to believe that Congress has learned its lesson because they did finally come around on the social media companies. But, you know, it kind of feels like deja vu where it took them so long yeah. to even like e even understand how the social media platforms work. Like I'm sure you remember those infamous 2018 hearings with Mark Zuckerberg Very where Orrin much. Hatch is asking like, how do you make your money? Why do I have so many chocolate ads on my feed? <laughs> <laughs> and it, like at that point, social media had been like a national emergency for two or three years and they still didn't know how it worked. And a lot of people have come around since then. And like by 2020, you did see a lot of people in Congress who had gotten very smart on it and their staff had finally gotten smart on it, but um, it does feel like we haven't we haven't fully learned our lesson about how you have to be ahead of the curve on the tech companies instead of just asking them, well, how does your technology work? And you know, on that note about timing, like I really worried that a lot of this regulatory talk about artificial intelligence is it's coming a bit late already, even though it's just been a a huge topic that's sort of broken out of the tech world. Um, and into the political world in maybe the last year or two. But we have an election coming up. And I think that there are a lot of bad actors, many of them with authoritarian bents in the world, who would like to see Donald Trump reelected. And, you know, I don't want to overstate the effects of propaganda because low-tech propaganda works pretty well on people <laughs> as well. But... You have a lot of AI-generated propaganda from a lot of bad actors uh, involved in an election in 2024, whether domestic or foreign, and doesn't seem like it's a recipe for anything good. And the thing that does make me a little bit sympathetic to the difficulty of regulating it is that the technology moves so fast. Mm. And it's hard for even the people who... So like something that I think is really important to understand about this generation of AI is that... Not even the people who design it and build it are fully aware or able to fully understand what it's capable of because so much of it is self-guided. That doesn't mean it's Skynet and it's going to like break free and take over, but it does mean that just like what it's able to do is you just like run it and you kind of test it and see like, what can it do? What can it not do? And so it's like, 
if even the people who are making it aren't are like learning about it after the fact, regulators are there's going to be no way for them to keep that out of the curve. Yeah, it feels like with every technological development, there are unintended and unforeseen consequences, and right. it seems like for AI, that is going to be yeah. on steroids, right? Um, yeah. Which is, and look, I think the White House has been on top of this. I think they know. I mean, when they're aware, when least, Dan interviewed White House Chief of Staff uh, Jeff Zients on Pod Save America a couple months ago, he was like, oh, this is one of the top three issues the president's concerned on, which sort of really? surprised me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's surprising. Yeah. And so they're going to come up with some regulations. I mean, even I think like as a, you know, I don't know if it's a Band-Aid solution or not, but for the 2024 election, even like requiring watermarks on AI generated content you know, I don't know, that that seems like it could help a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of technologies that we have developed in our country's history where because that technology is considered to be dangerous, the government regulators are involved in monitoring it. And you just like you have to have just like a grown up in the room, just kind of keeping track of where it's going and what you're working on. I mean, that's been the history with weapons development in the country. And that doesn't mean that you're stopping progress. It doesn't mean the government is controlling it or spying on it. But I think we do have to. There's, I think, broad acknowledgement that we don't fully understand how powerful this could be. And as skeptical as I am of the government's ability to get ahead of this, I do think just close involvement with these companies is going to be helpful. So more meetings with uh, Elon and Zuck, who I guess were <laughs> quite frosty to each other, is what I heard. I was I was waiting for a cage match to break out. Yeah, and they're both still willing, I guess, but uh-huh. we'll see. Yeah, I don't uh, Speaking of Elon, we got to talk about Walter Isaacson's new biography about the billionaire. Uh, lots of excerpts already making news. I have to say, I thought the story about his radicalization mm-hmm. was quite interesting and insightful. It seems like, well, it seems like two big things happened. One, he was mad that he had to shut his Tesla factory down because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wanted people to keep working. Uh, Didn't think the pandemic was a big deal. (laughs) So he was a real, like, you know, freedom, Fauci stealing my freedom kind of guy. And it seems like he's even angrier that his eldest child not only transitioned, Mm -hmm. but became a leftist. And he blames what he calls the progressive woke indoctrination at the L.A. private school right here in L.A. uh, Crossroads uh, for the fact that she no longer wants to spend any time with him. And here's a quote he gave to Walter Isaacson. Unless the woke mind virus, which is fundamentally anti-science, anti-merit and anti-human in general, is stopped, civilization will never become (laughs) multiplanetary. I just loved where that sentence ended. I know. I, like, it's I, definitely, it takes like, a little Elon Musk yeah, twist like, well, at the well, end. Oh, yeah. no. We're not going to become multiplanetary because of the woke mind virus. It's funny. He's in so many ways. He just sounds like you're kind of like standard 50-something Fox News dad. But with just with like this little sci-fi guy, a little like flavor note at the end. Well, this is, I, I mean, I want to hear what you think is interesting about this book. But it just, for me, that sort of explains it all. <laughs> and it's it's... You know, people, I think liberals sometimes tend to think that people on the far right, uh, like if you're radicalized, if you're a Fox News watching person, like you got to be, you got to be dumb, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's been a little like, oh, Elon's not really a genius. Elon's dumb kind of thing. I think Elon is clearly a very smart guy about a lot of topics. He thinks he's smarter on a lot more topics than Mm -hmm. he is, but like he's building cars, building rockets, some kind of smart guy. And yet he clearly 
fell down the rabbit hole of internet radicalization. And some of it was personal. Mm -hmm. Some of it was tendencies that he clearly already had there in his life, right? And tendencies already had. But it's fairly clear what happened here is that this guy was brain poisoned by the internet. Yeah. I think you're right that the kind of big question this book is trying to answer is like, what happened to Elon Musk? And it's like the project of this book is to find a like grand unified theory. Like what's the rosebud sled <laughs> of Elon Musk? And I, I think that he has assembled some like meaningful stories from a long Elon Musk life that like helped to chart his progress. I think he overstates how much there's like the aha, like radicalization. Right. This is where he turned moments. Which like, you do to tell a story. It's right? true. And it's it's over-exaggerated. And I'm, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that like, look, when you are a full-time book writer, it's like you and I know a lot of full-time book writers, like you have to churn out a lot of books to make ends meet, even if you're a big writer like Walter Isaacson. Like, yeah. I think this book was kind of a paycheck job. I, like, I'm sorry, like no shade to my guy, but like there are passion projects and there's one where you like churn it out off of 10 interviews and it's like hope to make a lot of money. I think that's what this was. And the like case for what happened to Elon, he was radicalized by these two events, I think is way overstated. Yeah. I think that... You know, you see a lot of his tendencies from much earlier that in his life, like in the PayPal era, you see a lot of this. And I think in a lot of ways, he is like kind of just your standard Obama Trump voter. Like, I think that that really tracks oh, yeah. like the timeline. I think it tracks the things that he talks about, that he cares about. The fact that like Walter Isaacson makes a big deal about like he used to be an Obama donor. And now, like, look at how fucking crazy he is. And I think that he just like. I think that there are probably particulars from his life that track along and like parallel the general Obama Trump voter journey, which is this like small but really well documented phenomenon. And I think it's just basically like the same thing that we know happened generally with Obama Trump voters, which it was racial resentment and like a backlash to social change that felt like it was going faster or moving at a pace that he didn't like and wasn't comfortable with. And now he's just like taken this hard right turn as so, so many people in not just the United States, but a lot of Western countries have. And I think that for him and for a lot of the Silicon Valley online used to be center, center right, mm -hmm. has since gone even further reactionary, there's like an added... Yeah. level to it because i think mm -hmm. a lot of obama trump voters are just by demographics non-college educated sure right like right midwestern middle of the country right that's right. that's sort of the stereotype right but then you've got like the elons the all-in pod folks like all of these the blake masters and the on the extreme end of this right peter Thiel, and for them you know having gone to a number of these fundraisers with obama <laughs> way back in the day <laughs> You just like you can't. You, it's it's physically impossible to not roll your eyes at these fundraisers when, right. when the tech people talked. Right. And for all their brilliance and rather like we're you know we believe in social progress and we're culturally liberal and blah blah blah. There's just this libertarian streak mm -hmm. that is just so they view the government and they view politics as dirty and stupid and corrupt and they are the geniuses that can fix everything. And so when they have to face any kind of rules, mm -hmm. regulations, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, entreaty to think about others and the populace, stuff like right. that, like, right. and to come together as a community, they resist. 
Yeah. Right? And that, I think yeah. that was clearly Elon with around the pandemic. Right. And right. and then I think some of the more cultural social stuff is in line with what you're saying, which is, you know, he had a, you know, he had a kid who transitioned and suddenly he thinks that uh, the reason she doesn't want to talk to him is not because he's an asshole, which he always has been, but because of some, the you know, the woke mind virus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It is. I think it's a it's a real irony that you're right that this the like tech backlash and tech hard turn to the right is both very distinct from the like. Obama Trump non-college like white backlash but also really parallels it and yes, that the like Obama sure. Trump like white non-college backlash is like we like white men of a certain couple of generations thought we were like the heirs of history we thought we were always supposed to be the natural default top of society and like now society is changing very, very Roman Empire yeah right right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're always thinking about the Roman Empire John <laughs> uh, and like you know at some point in the like 2010s a lot of non-college white men started to learn like, oh my God, I have to make space in society for like, I don't get to be the top of the social hierarchy. Not everything is going to be for me. I have to make room for people of color, LGBT people, people who are different from me. And I hate that. And I hate that change. And I want to reclaim my place at the top of the hierarchy. Much like tech guys came up, especially tech guys of the Gen X, Elon Musk generation came up in the 90s thinking that like, we are the heroes of the universe. We're the masters. We're the like smartest people in the world because they were writing off of all this free VC money. And then like it started to crumble in the 2010s because there was a big backlash to Silicon Valley after Trump was elected. There was like interest rates are going up, regulations are coming down and they're saying, well, people are turning against us. They're no longer saying we're the smartest people in the history of the world. So that must mean there's something wrong with the world and we have to do this big backlash to reclaim our place. And there's this like mission creep where it's like, I'm smart about this. So therefore I am smart about everything, right? Which is the, the the whole Twitter story with Elon, right? Like I could build rockets and cars so i must be able to run a social network how yeah. hard can people be <laughs> well dude <laughs> and this is that like every like again the like something that i think like kind of gets under my skin about the walter isaacson book is like he's trying to trace an arc and i get that but like i really think this is who he has always been also in terms of like fucking up his businesses like you read his stories about getting pushed out of paypal and it's because he tried to rename the company x for no good reason and they were like what the hell are you doing and tried to branch it off in all these businesses that it shouldn't have been in which is like the same thing that he's doing now i think he has in his personal life and his personality he's always been a puckish asshole sure yeah <laughs> i think that is contrary sure. and, and yeah. you know i right, i'm pain. saying that not like as knowing, a puckish asshole yourself a puckish, yeah. right <laughs> no knowing people who know him knowing people who've dealt with him from way back when like this is all it all fits and I, then I think, but I think there is a story about political radicalization that actually now his political beliefs are more in line with his personality. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's sort true. Of, that's sort of how I see it. That's true. Yeah, yeah, right. I guess it's always the question with political radicalization is how much is it driven by particular events in some way? And this is true of anyone. This is true of, you yeah. know, the randos who join QAnon, particular events in their life, particular shocks, and how much of it is because of broader societal trends that they're just a part yeah. of. And usually it's a, a mix of both. Anything else from the biography that you're interested in? So uh, this episode uh, about um, 
Elon Musk shutting down or or refusing to open up access to this Starlink remote internet mm. service yes. to the Ukrainian military when it was trying to launch this naval drone attack on Russian forces in the occupied Ukrainian port of Sevastopol, I think is pretty interesting. And it's like, it's not a story that was first reported in the Walter Isaacson book, but we got some new details on it. Now, some of those details turned out to be wrong. So, whoops. <laughs> Big whoops. <laughs> but I think this is like... A thing, a real thing to keep an eye on is like Elon Musk's relationship to the Russian government. I'm not trying to like push a big conspiracy theory. I don't think he's in Vladimir Putin's pocket, but like he has implied to a lot of people that he talks on the phone to Vladimir Putin. He has said himself that he did this to block a Ukrainian attack on Russian forces because of a conversation he had with the Russian ambassador to the United States in which the Russian- Who's always on the level. That's right, right which ter <laughs> who turned out to have lied to Elon Musk about- he said that if Ukraine launches an attack on Crimea, where this port is, it will lead to nuclear war. That was never credible. Everybody who knows anything about this war knows that that was not true. But he believed that this was true. And so he is like still talking very proudly about like, yes, we stopped the Ukrainians from launching this attack because we have the Starlink service that they use um, by like shutting or refusing to turn off the service for them. So all these drones like floated up onto the beach and like people in the U.S. government are worried about this. Yeah, you don't have to believe a conspiracy that, like, Elon Musk is a Russian asset who sure. wants Putin to win the war. Sure. But you, but it, what's obvious is that he's a guy who's had his brain poisoned by the internet, who's been radicalized by a lot of the right-wing bullshit that you see on the internet. Which and is very pro-Russian. his view of the war right. is in line with what a lot of the folks on the right think. Yeah. And so, but the only difference is he's in control of this incredibly important communication system and billions of dollars. And uh, it has this relationship with the U.S. government. The, the U.S. government has to depend on him for shit. I mean, it's... Yeah, he, is he, this worries me a lot. As bad as the Twitter stuff is, the fact that he is an integral node in not just American, but international like military defense infrastructure is worrying. Because he's made clear with this episode that he feels that it is not just okay, but actually really good for him to intervene and to have like a foreign policy of his own and to say like, I don't think this attack is a good idea, so I'm not going to let it happen. And it's why, you know, uh, the free speech champion that Elon Musk is uh, just sort of that, that, that goes away when it comes to China. <laughs> Because he's yeah. got, because he's got uh, business interests, but particularly around Tesla and China. And there is a part in the book where I guess Isaacson reports on a conversation that Elon had with Barry Weiss, the uh, journalist Barry Weiss, about uh, he said, "Oh yeah, China. The, we are going to have to be careful what is said on Twitter about China because of my business interests." Now you're a little more skeptical of that. I so I I, I hate to say it, but I don't think that what we learned about this particular China conversation is that damning or that bad. So the, what he is reported to have said is like, we have to be careful about what we say about China because we have business interests there, which is, I don't like that that's true, but like every company has business in China and they will all say the exact same thing. That's mm -hmm. not like a good thing, but it doesn't mean that he's doing like pro-China censorship. It doesn't mean that he's like steering policy towards China. I don't think we have any evidence yet that he is like manipulating Twitter to appease Chinese authorities. And I think we would see that pretty quickly because 
everything he does there is so fucking clumsy. It's very yeah. obvious. I'm going to turn my entire account into a, like an anti-China propaganda screed and see what happens. Do you think I'll get shadow banned? I, I think give it a shot. I think it'll be, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what your engagement numbers do. <laughs> I think that you should become a hardcore Taiwanese nationalist and be just like Chiang Kai-shek is your bio photo now. You're all about the Taiwanese National Party. You're reclaiming all of greater China for Taiwan. I think that would be a fun bit for you. I guess I should really get TikTok off my phone. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, That's all the time we have for today. I think we solved that problem. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. If you're looking for more Crooked content, check out the latest episode of our YouTube original series, Liberal Tears. Host Tommy Vitor and political commentator Brian Tyler Cohen team up to rank the most what-the-fuck moments from political press conferences. Look, if you want to watch Tommy Vitor get hazed by Brian Tyler Cohen, this is the show for you. He's had to eat hot chips. He got tramp stamps of Mike Pence. The whole thing. Search Liberal Tears on YouTube and subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episode drops. Also, it's been one month since Crooked Media Reads published our first book, Mobility, by Lydia Kiesling. And we got some updates. Not only did Mobility make national bestseller lists, it has also received amazing reviews, such as this one from the LA Times, which called it an emotionally and geopolitically savvy coming-of-age story. Don't let another month pass you by. Grab your copy of Mobility wherever books are sold. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.